morning. How are you doing this morning? Are you thrilled as I am for the cooler weather? Man, I was looking at the weather this week coming, and we are supposed to have lows in the 60s. It seems like we haven't seen that for like four years. <laughs> My name is Jason Averill. I'm the pastor here at Grace right now. And uh, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. It's great to see you on a Sunday morning. It's my favorite day every day. Every Sunday is my favorite day because every Sunday we get to worship our Lord. So we are in a new sermon series for the fall, and this sermon series is Who is Jesus? So during the summer, we had the sermon series Studying God, and we were looking at who God was. And specifically, we were looking at his attributes. And now, during the fall, we've transitioned to see who Jesus is, to get to know our Savior a little bit better every week. Last week, Wilson kicked us off with a study of John chapter 1, and we looked at Jesus as the pre-incarnate word who came on the scene, took on flesh, and was born as a man, and then lived a perfect life for us and died a sinner's death for us. And that's, that's where we were last week. This week, we are turning to Jesus' baptism. This is the start of his earthly ministry. And we're going to study Matthew chapter 3. And in your bulletins, it says uh, verse 7 uh, is the start point. But I changed that kind of last minute. We're starting right at verse 1. Don't worry. It's a fairly short chapter. So... Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we do, we thank you for this day. Lord, we come here today as your people, thirsting for your word. We are hungry for it, Lord. And we ask, we ask that as we turn to, to the sermon, as we turn to the preaching of the word, that you feed us, that you fill us. Jesus, you are the true word, the word become flesh. As we behold you, we know that we see the glory of the Father. As we behold you, we know that we become more and more like you. So Jesus, show us yourself. Show us yourself today. Make yourself big in our eyes and make our our own selves small in comparison. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you illuminate us to our need for Christ and also, Lord, illuminate us to the mercy that we have in Christ. It is in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. So, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And then please stand as we read. Starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all men are like grass and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word stands forever. Let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So, John the Baptist, he's in the desert, and he's preaching repent. And this passage has so often struck me as just strange. You know, there are many strange passages in the Bible, many passages that I read, and I'm just like, I have no idea what's going on or why it's happening. And this is a familiar passage to most of us. Many of us have read it many times. You know, every time we start a new New Testament reading plan, we start right here at Matthew 1.1. Well, honestly, probably we start with Matthew 1.18 because we skip the genealogy because nobody has time for that. Although the genealogy is actually really important, so I would encourage you to study it. But the problem with familiar passages is that even though they're strange, we kind of become inoculated to their strangeness. We don't realize how strange they are after we've read them a hundred times. But this passage, it is strange. So we have John, Jesus' cousin, and he's living in the wilderness, which, honestly, we might peg that to be strange, but Luke says that he lived in the wilderness from his youth. So that's probably the least strange thing in the passage. But he comes preaching, repent, repent. And people are flocking to him. Why? Why do people leave the city, leave their homes, leave their comforts? Why do they go out into the wilderness to see him? They hear that he's a prophet. 
they hear that he's speaking the words of God. Matthew even quotes Isaiah here, and he says, this is the person that Isaiah was talking about, the person who is crying out in the desert, make straight the paths of the Lord. This is the coming prophet that Isaiah prophesied about. And the people would have known that. They knew their Bible very well, and they knew Isaiah better than most books. They would have known very well that John, as a prophet in the wilderness, was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Now, they went to see a prophet. Why did they want to go and see a prophet? Just because it was neat? Why? Didn't they have prophets? Well, unfortunately, no. In fact, if you just flip your Bible back just probably two pages, in mine it's three because there's a filler page, you'll find the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. In the last book of the Old Testament, it was written somewhere in the 400s B.C., And since then, they had not had a prophet in Israel. Since then, God had been all but silent in Israel. And yet here comes John, the prophet of God. It's interesting looking at the end of Malachi, this last chapter. It's very short. I'll read it. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Kind of reminiscent of what, of what John just said. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, and they will be ashes under, your soul, under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I have commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's an interesting way for the Old Testament to end. It ends with this prophecy of this great prophet that's going to come. It's going to be Elijah that comes back. Elijah, who was carried off by chariots of fire, will come back and will preach and will turn the hearts of Israel. Strange. Strange. Sorry. I'm going to have to reposition this because I think we're just going to keep getting the feedback otherwise. All right. So, we hear this prophecy about Elijah coming back from Malachi. Now, it's interesting, again, when you look at some of the strange things, some of the strange features of the story, you know, John, he's out in the desert. Where did Elijah spend most of his time? He didn't spend it in the cities. He spent it in the wilderness of Israel. What did 
I think we're just going to get that feedback regardless. Sorry. Um, where, I mean, what did he wear? We're told what he wore in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. We're told that he wore a garment made of hair. And John wears a garment made of camel hair. We're told that he bound that to his waist with a leather belt. Elijah did, and so does John. John eats locusts and honey, which seems weird. But it's actually permissible by the law. And so they're really starting to get excited here for good cause, too, because, you know, for 400 years or more, they had been waiting for the prophet to come, the prophet Elijah. And here is John who is checking all of the boxes. So Elijah come back, and that's why they're going out to see him. That's why they want to hear from the prophet. And that's where we come into the story today. So today we're going to learn three things from the passage. We're going to learn about what John's baptism was. We're going to learn about Jesus' baptism by John. And we're going to learn about our baptism. So John's baptism, Jesus' baptism by John, and our baptism. So John came baptizing, and I mentioned that you know, there are many, many odd, strange things in here. And the fact that he came baptizing, that is one of the strangest things if you actually know the culture. Because while baptism was not unheard of, it was a practice in those days. It wasn't practiced like this. Baptism was almost exclusively restricted to proselytes. I'm going to get the word eventually. Proselytes. Okay, those are people who are coming into the Jewish faith. Those are Gentiles that are, are wanting to become Jews. And there were three rites that they had to go through, three rituals. And the first was baptism. But the baptism was always self-administered. It wasn't administered by somebody else. It was administered by themselves. And it represented them joining with the covenant family as the covenant family was sent through the Red Sea. That's what it symbolized. And it was a washing away of all the uncleanness of being a Gentile. And so, what John was doing was really strange because he was the one baptizing. He was the one doing it. It wasn't self-administered. And not only that... He was baptizing the children of Israel. He was baptizing people who were already in the covenant family of God. And that was weird. You didn't do that. But why did he do it? Why did he say it? Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And then if you skip down to verse 11... He says, this is John speaking, I baptize you with fire, uh, sorry, I baptize you with water for repentance. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. People would come to him confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, and he would baptize them. And that's strange in and of itself too because that's not the way the Jewish people repented. 
the Jewish people at this time had pretty good customs for repentance. The first custom was coating themselves in ashes and wearing sackcloth. You hear about that in the Bible a lot. And that was still going on in Jesus' day here. The other was cutting your hair. That was a sign of your shame. It was an outward sign of your shame. Whenever you cut your hair, you were repenting of sins. And most of all, whenever you went to confess your sins, you would confess them to the priest. And when you went to confess to the priest, you would take with you a sacrifice. And you would ask the priest, please sacrifice this for me. Make atonement for my sins. And then you would trust in the promises of God. Trust in his mercy. Trust in his grace to atone for your sin and approve the sacrifice that you just made. That's what you would do. That's how you would show repentance. You would not be baptized. It's weird. And the more you know the culture, the weirder it gets. So, he was baptizing for repentance. What is repentance? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually has a really good definition of repentance. If you, if you ever want to look it up, it's question 87. It's what is repentance unto life? And the Shorter Catechism says, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of their sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, you have to get that old school language in there, doth, with grief and hatred of their sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's a huge definition, but it's very specific and very intentional and very illustrative at every point. And there's a lot in there. Starts out, what is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace. A saving grace. It's not something that you can do yourself. It's not something that you can work up in yourself. It has to be given to you. It has to be performed for you. God has to send his Holy Spirit to you and regenerate your heart, take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and actually move you to repentance. That is how you repent. That's how it starts. It doesn't start with you. And you kind of see that here in John's baptism. People come to him, that's true, but they don't baptize themselves. He baptizes them. And in fact, when people come in an unworthy manner, when people he knows aren't repentant come, he doesn't baptize them. We'll get to that in a minute. Out of a true sense of his sin, so the Shorter Catechism says, that, that is you have, have to actually look at yourself rightly. You have to see your sin for what it is. See your sin as odious, as smelly, as clinging to you as something that you can't get away from. You need an awareness of your sin. And you also need to have an apprehension of mercy of God. You have to be able to trust in his promises. Let's look at verses 7 through 10 here. But 
when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what was the problem? Why was he so offended? Why did he rail so much against the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It's because they did not have within them actual repentance. They didn't come out to repent. They came out to see a, a bit of a spectacle, to see who John was and to kind of test him. How do we know that they didn't really come in repentance. Well, one, his reaction, and two, just how the Pharisees are portrayed again and again and again throughout Scripture. They're the holy ones. They're the ones who are on the right side of God. They're the ones who can actually trust in their works. In fact, they developed these 613, 613 rules that they would follow and they would follow them in order so that they could try to perfectly keep the law. No. They didn't have a true sense of their sin. They lacked that awareness at all. It had not been given to them. And because of that, they had no desire for mercy because they didn't think they needed it. No. So why was he baptizing? He was baptizing a baptism of repentance. He was showing forth the need for the baptism of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. We see that in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And of course... That kind of leaves us a little bit in a bind, right? Because it begs the question here. If John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, why was Jesus baptized? Did he, did he need to repent? Again, that's weird. It's weird. Why was Jesus baptized? Verse 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why was he baptized by John? If it's a baptism of repentance, did he need to repent? And our knee-jerk reaction, of course, always is no. No. If you know your Bible, if you know your New Testament, you know he did not need to repent. We're told again and again and again, again and again and again, that he was without sin. He knew no sin. He was the spotless lamb. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And the Father cannot sin and cannot tempt people into sin. We're told many, many times. 
on and on. And so why was he baptized then? If he didn't need to repent, why was he submitting to a baptism of repentance? And even John was taken back by this. That's how you know it's super strange because John objects to it. He's like, no, no, this isn't right. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, not the other way around. Why are you coming to me? And what's Jesus' answer? He says, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And what does he mean? What does he mean here? And that puzzled me for quite a while. Why was he baptized? It's one of those things that as I read the Bible, I just kind of glossed over it. I I ignored the, the strangeness of it until I actually had to study it. But then it started niggling at me. And I started thinking eventually about our corporate confession of sin. You know, every week we have this corporate confession of sin. And we read the words on the screen. And we confess together. And it's a beautiful thing. But you know from your own experience that not all the sins that are listed up there are your sins. There are some things that you confess to, some things that you come in corporate repentance of that don't match who you are. You are not guilty of everything up there. You haven't personally done it. And yet, because we're part of a family, because we're part of one body, because we have been forged together into the body of Jesus in the church, it's right that we confess corporately even when we're not guilty. I turned to commentaries after I was studying this, and I actually found that all of the commentaries that I looked at agreed with that. Every single one agreed with that statement. I think Dan Doriani, though, said it the best. He says this. Jesus replies, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented, let it be so now, means that the time of Jesus' ministry is not yet at hand. It is still John's hour. In three years, Jesus will complete his ministry and institute his baptism. But first, he must teach, heal, suffer, die, and rise again. Then he will charge his apostles to baptize, saying, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. Meanwhile, to fulfill all righteousness, John must baptize Jesus. Jesus knows that his baptism is the Father's will. By receiving baptism, he identifies with his people in their sin. The nation needs to repent. And Jesus is part of the nation. So Jesus comes to repent. He does not separate himself from them, that is, his people. Jesus binds himself to the destiny of Israel. If John is a prophet and a leader of Israel, then Jesus will submit to his call for repentance, whether he personally needs to repent or not. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to me because Jesus was baptized and submitted to a baptism of repentance 
in order that he might have solidarity with his people. You know, we're very used to thinking that Jesus has solidarity with his people at the cross, that at the cross he takes all of our sins upon himself and gives us his righteousness, and that is very true. But right here at the beginning of his ministry, at the very beginning, he says, I am one with my people. They need to repent. Therefore, even though I do not, I will for them. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, let's continue. Verse 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Man, that's so good. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus like a dove. And that picture of the Holy Spirit coming down upon him is the Holy Spirit coming upon him and empowering him for his ministry. And it would be a huge mistake not to see the, the imagery that is common between this and common between the giving of the Spirit to us in our spirit baptism. If you go to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, how does the Spirit come upon the people? He descends from heaven in tongues of fire. We get a small picture, an an evocation. Sorry. An evocation of the imagery of the baptism of the Holy Spirit right here in Jesus' baptism. So this brings us to our look at our baptism. You know, and a question that we should ask is, how does our baptism relate to John's baptism? How does our baptism relate to his? Is it the same baptism? Is our baptism the same as John's? Well, if we read our Bible, we'd actually be forced to say no. If you go to Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1, this is uh, Paul. He's coming to Ephesus. And says, as it happened, that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. No, our baptism is, is different from the baptism of John's. Baptism of, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance, what is our baptism for? 
Well, Paul actually expounds that quite well in many of his letters, and we just kind of have to piece it together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink from one spirit. That is, in our baptism, it forges us together in one body. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That baptism doesn't just bind us together as one body, but it actually binds us together as Abraham's offspring. It binds us together into the covenant family of Abraham. And in Colossians, we're told again by Paul, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What is he saying there? He's saying that in baptism, you're circumcised. What did circumcision do? Circumcision made you a part of the covenant family. That was the sign and the seal of the family of God. And when you are baptized, that is the sign and the seal that you are part of the family of God. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 4 and he says, He received the sign of he being Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This is explaining what circumcision was for and how it is a sign and a seal. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that, the righteous, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That is, circumcision was given to Abraham for a purpose, and it was so that it would be a sign and a seal of his covenant family, of the people who come after him, who are part of the family of God. Peter, Peter has something else to say. He says, and this is one of those strange passages that we just kind of have to accept. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, that baptism somehow corresponds to the saving of the people on the ark. And it's not just removal of dirt from the body. 
The washing that happens is a deeper washing than that. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience that you have entered into fellowship with Christ and that you are covered by his blood and therefore you have his righteousness and you have no need for shame. That's what our baptism is. Westminster Shorter Catechism, again, has a good summary of this. It says, what is baptism? This is question 94. What is baptism? It says, baptism is a sacrament wherein by the washing of waters in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, it <clears throat> doth signify and seal our ingrafting into Christ, partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. What does that say? It says that it seals and signifies our engrafting into Christ, that as Christ is the true vine and we are the branches, that we are grafted into him by the Holy Spirit and that that happens in our baptism, in our Holy Spirit baptism. We are connected to Jesus, inseparable, and we have eternal life at that point. And we are made partakers of the covenant of grace, of all the benefits of the covenant of grace. Adoption, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of the benefits of the covenant of grace are made ours when the Holy Spirit comes and applies that true baptism to us. And we're engaged to be the Lord's. That is, we are waiting for the consummation at the end of time for the wedding feast of the Lamb where we will be finally and fully united to Christ forever. That's what our baptism means. That's what it signifies and seals. What does it mean that it's a seal? It means that it's guaranteed. That's what a seal means. That it has God's stamp of authenticity. It shows forth that we will be united to Christ forever. And we are sealed by the giving of the Holy Spirit that we are united with Christ forever. But I talked about Holy Spirit baptism versus water baptism. They are connected, but they're kind of two different things. You know, the water baptism, it's not magic. It's not something that when it happens to you, boom, just because of the nature of the rite, uh, you are then saved that when that happens, you're grafted into Christ. No, it's not magic. It still has to be effectuated by the Holy Spirit. Water baptism, it puts the mark of the covenant upon you, but the Holy Spirit, he's the one that actually unites you with Christ. He is the one that makes your baptism effectual. He's the one that actually pours out upon you and dwells in you and makes your baptism real. And the Holy Spirit works when and where he wills. Which is why some people who undergo the water baptism, sure that they are believers, end up walking away from the faith because they were never truly united to Christ. Because the water baptism isn't magic the Holy Spirit has to work and that is his doing 
Those people had all the outward trappings of being in the covenant, but they proved ultimately that they were simply covenant breakers because the Holy Spirit never poured out upon them. Believers, though, we have the Holy Spirit poured into us. We are united with Christ, and we are saved because of that union. Through our faith, we are bound to him inseparably. And the Holy Spirit has worked that out in us. We've been grafted into the true vine in our true baptism to make us partakers of the true covenant of grace. So what? So what, Jason? I understand baptism now. That's great. But what do I do? People always want something to do. What do I do? How do I apply this? How does this get personal to me? What's the takeaway? My takeaway is simple. Three words. Remember your baptism. What does your baptism mean? Your baptism means that you have been sealed. Sealed as part of the covenant of grace. It signifies your ingrafting into Christ. It signifies his blood being shed for you and you getting his righteousness. You are raised to life, to newness of life, through your baptism. You are bound to Christ's death on the cross through your baptism. You are his, finally, fully, forever, in your baptism. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes. It's called, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, and it has this line, and it's the line that just makes me love the song so much. And it says, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He takes a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I love that. It's that declaration, that shouting out of what is true, that, <clears throat> that I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. That's awesome. It means that Jesus is with us fully, completely. We are his, and he is ours. We're part of the family of God. Another thing to remember whenever you remember your baptism is that your reason for getting baptized, whatever it was, it ultimately was the choice of God. That's why you were baptized. Maybe you don't even remember your baptism. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. That definitely wasn't your choice. doesn't even have a semblance of being your choice. No. That was the water baptism. wasn't your choice. But the Holy Spirit baptism upon you when you profess your faith in Christ, that's also not your choice. That is something that is worked out in your heart and that is something that the Spirit does upon you when and where he wills. And remember that because that's a great thing. It seems weird to say that our lack of freedom is a great thing, but our lack of freedom here is an amazing thing because if it wasn't our doing, if it wasn't our choice, ultimately, then there's no way that we could give it up. No way at all that we could give it up. 
We are safe. We are secure. If you haven't been baptized, but you feel that longing to be baptized, remember this sermon. Come to me after service. Talk to Wilson. Talk to any of the elders. And we can, we can interview you, and we can set up that water baptism. And as you are baptized, it's, it's a great thing to dwell on the true meaning of baptism. Remember your baptism. Let us pray. Father, there's so many glorious things that you have done for us. Lord, before all time began, you elected us as your people. And then in the fullness of time, you sent Jesus into the world, taking on human flesh so that he could live a perfect life on our behalf and die a sinner's death on our behalf. All so that we might become family with you. It is overwhelming to think of. And your blessings don't even stop there, Lord. You pour out your Holy Spirit on us and into us and the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts forever and always, uniting us with our great Savior. It is truly a wondrous act of love that you have given us. We ask that as we turn from here now, that you keep that before our eyes. Keep your sovereign grace. Keep your mercy. Keep your love before our eyes. Let us see our great Savior more clearly and in seeing him become like him. Let us look forward to the great and glorious day that we have in the future of the wedding feast of the Lamb where we will be fully and finally forever united with him. Amen.